Hi everybody and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Today is June 5th, 2023. Going through some old recordings, I found this Neuroscientist Talk Shop conversation with Alison Dope from 2009. It was hosted by Salma Karashi. I was not there that day and I'd never heard it before. I don't know why it was never posted, but it is a treasure. Allison explains why learned birdsong is such an important model for understanding motor learning. She outlines much of what we know about the process and the brain structures responsible. Although it was 14 years ago, it still seems very timely and there's a lot we can learn from it today. Allison was taken from us in 2014 and listening to this reminded me how much we lost. Stay on after the podcast for a conversation between Allison and Michael Ferris about the comparative neuroanatomy of bird pallium and mammalian cortex, which Salma had the foresight to record and save before the regular podcast conversation began. So enjoy this old podcast. Hello everyone, it's February 5th, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Allison Dope, professor at the Keck Center for Integrative Neuroscience and the Departments of Physiology and Psychiatry at UCSF, where she works on the neural basis of vocal learning in songbirds. Is that how you wanted me to introduce you? Is that all right? That's fine. Okay. Uh, where she works on the neural basis of vocal learning in songbirds. Thanks for being here, Allison. Thank you, Carla. It's great. Around the this is a mess today. Around the room we have Michael Ferris. Hi. Kelly Suter. Hi. Todd Troyer. Hello. Carlos Palladini. Hi. Nicole Witcha. Hello. Rama Rutnam. Hi, Salma. And me, Salma Karashi. So um, we talked a little bit about some of the specific parallels already. Well, the first question was, what are the general parallels between human speech and birdsong? And so we, we hit on some of the structural stuff, but I also wanted to ask you about it in terms of um, neural substrates and acquisition specific, specifically um, to get into the... Neural the substrates learning. or the behavior? Do you want me to talk about the behavior like I did in the talk? Yeah. Right. I mean, why would a psychiatrist study songbirds when there's... Okay, yeah, let's just back up. What are the gen- general parallels between human speech and birdsong? So the behaviorally, they're very striking, and this is what has gotten people interested in this system, because we know that humans, in order to learn to speak, have to hear an adult model, that if kids grow up without hearing any human speech, they will not speak normally. And they have to hear themselves while they go through the learning process. So it's not just enough to hear others, you have to also hear the sounds you are making, and then you can fix them. And we continue to be sensitive humans throughout life to auditory feedback so and we're all aware of this for instance when you're making an international phone call and you get a delayed version of yourself it becomes really hard to speak and there's a lot of beautiful data on that there are not that many other animals that learn their vocal behavior in a process that's individualized dependent on adult um, exposure and dependent on auditory feedback both from of other, no, that's not feedback, both on hearing others and hearing yourself. If you scan through the animal kingdom, so far no other primates do this. There was hope for a while for marmosets. Monkeys have very complex vocal behavior, but it turns out a lot of it is probably innate, and they use it, and they use it in semantically interesting ways because they're so smart, but they don't seem to have this have to hear someone else and then have to hear yourself while you learn to produce it. 
we think that whales and dolphins have that, and some bats look like they have it, but that's it. You know, dogs, cats, and then you get to songbirds. And it, there are 7,000 species, approximately, of birds, and 4,000 of them are songbirds, meaning they actually go through a process where they're born immature, they have to hear an adult sing, they memorize that, and then they go, they begin with very babbling, disorganized um vocalizations just like babies and then they gradually listen to them and they have to be able to hear themselves and end up producing something that sounds like what they heard from the adults and so it's behaviorally beautifully parallel in a bunch of ways for speech learning and then it turns out the bird brains and um, mammalian brains are not so different there's some structural differences but all the components may be there and so more and more it's become quite interesting when you have an animal model, you can then go and actually ask how nerve cells work and then think about how that relates to what we know from Nicole's bilingual babies or from fMRI studies and so on and so forth. So um, the neural substrate, the ability to look at the neural substrate with this fantastic behavior uh, that has its parallels to speech learning is, I think, what's got a lot of people excited about songbirds. So much of your recent work has been devoted to a particular circuit in the avian song system um, designated the anterior forebrain pathway. So in a little bit, I guess we'll get to the specific parallels between mammalian and avian basal ganglia circuitry, because this, this is the area that's generally thought to be the, the basal ganglia circuitry of the, of the songbird, yes? It's a piece of the basal ganglia circuitry. So there's a whole piece of, of basal ganglia circuitry in addition, but what seems to have happened evolutionarily... Um, which is interesting for this, for figuring out function is that a piece of bird basal ganglia got very focused on song learning and behavior. So that's nice for us who are trying to figure out how the brain works. When you go into a primate basal ganglia, there's tons of neurons and you can't you don't it's they're involved in all the primates' behaviors and so a lot of them will be silent when you record from them because you're not actually getting the animal to do the behavior that that neuron cares about. Turns out when you go into the songbird, the piece of basic animal that's specialized for song, 90% of the neurons are active when the animal sings. So that just helps us kind of, and we can analyze the song, so then we can kind of try to figure out what are they doing. Right. Yeah, um, is there an overrepresentation of song structures in the brand compared to, I mean, from you know proportion point of view, like you yeah, have inculcating bats? Um, I don't know. I think I'm always focused on area X, but area X is a pretty huge yeah. chunk of the basal ganglia for one for behavior. One behavior. So I would say, I guess I'd endorse that. It sounds like Michael would too. And you know what? It actually has a little more dopamine than the surrounding areas, as if also the dopamine areas thought that song was really important and interesting too. So, so they're song-producing machines, one can think of. Yeah. So why don't we step back a little bit, and if you could verbally diagram for us the circuit, just in... Broad stroke. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might help our listeners a little bit to just step through the, the system a little bit. Okay, the song circuit. So there is a, a motor, a so-called motor pathway. I'll give the simple version of it. That's a couple of nuc- a couple of brain areas in sequence that then go down and talk to the muscles of the vocal organ and to the respiratory centers, which is of course what you need to sing or to speak. You need to be able to control your respiration. And those, we think, have the commands for how to sing, and those it learns those commands during life. And then there's a side loop that a lot of us here are very interested in that's a basal ganglia cortical-like loop um, that interacts with the motor pathway 
And it was interesting, early on in the species that was first studied in, it felt like when you damaged it, it got damaged in the adult, nothing happened to song. And um, so it was thought not to have any function in the adult. It was clear early on that if it got damaged in young birds, the song was very disrupted. Oh, it's just important for learning. Now we realize it's actually important throughout life for learning, but the learning is more subtle in the adult, and you have to kind of push the animal to learn, and then you can show that you can't learn new things without this circuit. So one slightly oversimplified way of thinking about the song network is a motor pathway and then a modulating um, cortical basal ganglia circuit that interfaces with that motor pathway. And then there are dopamine inputs to lots of these structures that bring in attentional signals and uh, motivational signals. And who knows what the cerebellum is doing in song? It must be doing something. I was <laughs> There was a student at lunch who's I had to prompt who was working on cerebellum, and I said, don't you wonder what the cerebellum is doing? She said, yeah, it's true. <laughs> so variability as a teaching signal in learning circuits is, is a well-established idea, but your work has added another dimension to this in that you've found it's actually an active process in a circuit that's already learned what it has to do, and it's not just random noise. So, And also that it can be turned on and off based on something as abstract as social context. Right. So could you talk a little bit about the firing variability you see in one of the nuclei in the circuit and what we can extrapolate from it about the mammalian system? Big well, that's question. interesting. You guys, I am very curious to see. I think the mammalian system has not looked at this question enough, but I would not be surprised if the same phenomena that we see are present there. So what do we see? We see that when the bird sings by sings to a female, the firing is precise, and many of the spikes are single spikes in this area. And when the bird sings by itself, the firing rate is higher, and lots of spikes are in bursts, which are little rapid runs of spikes. And we know that if we take out all that activity, the bird <coughs> can't vary its song and can't become more and pre- is as precise all the time. So that's part of it. You summarized it very well. It's part of from my lab and others, a couple of others, have all become realized that this circuit is generating variability. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised, but in order to, we got interested in looking at variability because we were lucky enough, because it's a neuroethological system where we know some ways to switch the animal's state, in this case, presenting a female or not, that allowed us to see that there's this state dependence of it. And you might think of it as maybe one is a rewarded state and one is not, or one is attentive and one is not. So that was a real help to find this. If you look at the mammalian behavioral literature for basal ganglia, there's data like from Hikosaka showing if you ask an animal to look in eight directions, um, and one of the directions you give a reward, and in the other directions you don't, the variability of his behavior in the seven unrewarded directions is much higher than the variability in the reward direction. It looks just like our song frequency plots. But in the, they are not looking at the variability of their neural data. I feel like it, they're just looking at the means. We all do that a lot. We look at the mean rate. I think they got to go. They've got to go and look at what the... And maybe they have. I don't know. But I haven't seen anything yet. Why is the behavior more variable when the animal's not being rewarded? And is there a neural, the same neural correlate of that in, um, in those... Caudate recordings and stuff for you. So, you may know. 
Or she's pointing the dopamine man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, point I guess out. I guess that would be me. I, I, I don't know for sure, but um, it seems to me that the obvious experiment would be just to um, either uh, just shut down the nucleus that provides dopamine to Area X and L Man and um, the other. The, the third one. <laughs> there was a third Those nucleus. poor little thalamic nucleus, DL. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the thalamic one, that's right. And see if the animal's even capable of switching between um, yeah, so uh, an attention-type song versus a uh, uh, Right, that's been our song. hypothesis for a lot of people for a while, and we're trying to do those experiments, and I <clears throat> need to put Zoloft in the lab drinking water because they've just all... You won't, it won't be surprising to you. Those experiments turn out to be complex. I mean, we've put in dopamine... Antagonists, and we our hope was that we would, if dopamine is released when the bird sees a female, then maybe if we block that, um, she, he the bird won't be able to switch to the more precise state or whatever. And we are even doing it locally; we're not even doing it systemically. And when we put in dopamine blockade, the main effect we get is the bird stops singing, because, and that could be interesting. Although it's very depressing to the person doing the experiment because we have no behavior to analyze them. Yeah. It could actually be related to motivational, you know, maybe these structures are really important for initiating song as well, but that means we have to go in and find just the right level of dopamine that's enough to maybe have some effects on behavioral variability without having effects on song production. And so far we have not been able to do that. So I don't, I don't know about the anatomy too much in the bird, but in the mammalian system... All the project, the entire, almost the entire projection from the dopaminergic nucleus to the telencephalon goes through one pathway. And the, the case of the mammalian is called the medial forebrain bundle. Right, right. That's similar so in birds. It is, 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 if there's a similar thing in birds, then you may be able to just cause the switch from one behavior to another by just inducing stimulation of that bundle electrically and then that causing a massive release of dopamine whenever you decide to do it. Yeah, so. So we've we lesioned it, but of course, and the birds turn just like they do um, in mammals when you take out dopamine on one side. So that's very parallel. A student in Michael Brainerd's lab has was trying to stimulate in VTA and just above, and she gets the effect that they it causes them to pause, song pauses. So we're not getting it's a it's been a mess so far. We're not sure. So I, just one comment on that. Returning to that idea of the, the cortical subcortical loop and code switching and switching tasks or switching in language, um, the idea so far with very little patient data and with a, a little bit of transcranial magnetic stimulation data is that the basal ganglia itself is uh, involved in involved in inhibitory mechanisms in this mm-hmm. in the switching. Um, so in, inhibiting a switch, maintaining a, a Maintaining one of, uh, I guess, your, your one of your states, and it's the cortical um, uh, areas, the prefrontal cortex in humans, that is actually involved in the motivation to switch and the actual uh, drive to switch. These, would you? I mean, what you were talking about and knocking out the, the dopamine, you would expect in that case that you wouldn't have inhibition anymore, and that you would you would switch more, that you would end up um, switching. But if that was true, based on the human, but you model, might have also taken out. So if the prefrontal areas are thought to be involved in motivation, is it the, the dopamine in the prefrontal areas or just the prefrontal areas? Not clear, but it's, it seems that there is a dissociation when you have damage in, in, in uh, DFPLC, specific, specifically um, tertiolateral prefrontal cortex, that you get um, 
uh, inability to switch, so that uh, the ability to switch is gone. Whereas if you have basal ganglia damage, you switch randomly. Right, and that that as we talked about in the talk, that there's sort of a nice parallel somehow between MA and lesions make the song very rigid and not able to change anymore, and RAS lesions, at least in the young bird, cause the bird to not be able to stop changing. He, he continues to change his song. What dopamine does for those two structures, but dopamine may be doing one thing in X in the basal ganglia part and one thing in the more prefrontal part. And if we take it all out, maybe it's a mess. I mean, I think that actually is thought to be an issue that people are thinking about in schizophrenia and stuff. That prefrontal dopamine could be doing really different things than striatal dopamine, and we can't just lump it together. So we probably should go in and try to manipulate these things um, locally. And we are trying. So... So it feels like we're take somehow either because of an interesting but difficult action on the song system, we're losing motivation or ability to sing when we go into Ariax. But it could be also taking out all of you know accumbents. And so this is actually to me a very interesting question. So you, when you infuse, let's say, a dopamine antagonist just into Ariax, that actually keeps them from singing. Well, we don't really know, as right. you know, that it's just area X, because at low doses, we don't see much of anything. Maybe, and then as you get cranked at your depressed postdoc goes, all right, well, let's give a little more. Yeah. And then birds stop singing. And we don't, so is that because it got so much dopamine, we got over into different areas that are involved in initiation of motor gestures? Or is that one of the things, I'm actually interested in the possibility that that is something that X is also important and it relates to switching because that is in a sense initiating and uninitiating right and and there are some this is really cool and you guys might be helpful for thinking about this this there was a paper this is the thing I was starting to draw earlier from the fee lab showing that if you damage the premotor area the one in the straight line pathway I talked to you about the birds can still initiate songs just fine but if you damage, but the song is lousy because you've taken out the motor program. But if you damage that and you damage the one I talked about in the talk today, MAN, um, then the bird is mute. So without both of those convergent structures, the bird can't initiate. And But with just the premotor area gone, it turns out there's a difference in whether the bird can sing depending on social context. So he can only sing when he's alone. So that means that bursty activity that I showed today is enough to initiate song, but the precise single spike activity is not enough to initiate song. And we think, oh, that that's in that paper, and we're quite surprised and trying to follow that up in the lab, wondering what it is about um, that kind of activity that's ineffective for initiation and the other way the bird can sing, but... So there's something there with song, I agree, with song initiation, which probably relates to, again, like switching in into in and out of a mode. Yeah, let me just go back to the behavior, because I feel that so much of this is driven by the animal's behavior itself. And if you if you just look for the specific brain mechanism that's sort of triggered by the fact that a, fem- that a female is present when the male is singing, that makes him more regular, as opposed to when she's not present... What is the specific mechanism that is triggered? Is it selective attention that is sort of responsible for this? I, I'm just sort of trying to figure out. You know, there must something must be triggered that allows these sort of different types of responses to kick in. Right. What is that? Well, we don't know. I mean, that's part of what. If we could get control of it, then we could trace it back. Right? Could, it, could it be attention? Selective. It could attention. be attention. It could definitely be attention. We were talking about that at lunch with you know maybe she was saying maybe the birds have ADD when they're alone and they're mm-hmm. um, and they you're treating ADD yes. with the female. I actually was going to propose the opposite. Actually. Is their song similar when they're 
um, singing towards a female trying to attack, attract attention versus singing towards another male trying to get him away from his territory. They're both attentional. That's really interesting, and that's another piece where the behavior can help you out. Now, zebra finches sing the same song for territorial defense, which in their case is nest defense, versus attracting a female. And we see the same changes in the neural activity for territorial singing as for courtship singing. There are species of birds that actually engage different songs for those two conditions, so they might be interesting to look at with that in mind. Uh, but the other thing, so this could be definitely could be attentional. And the, the other seemingly related piece that ties it back into the learning, because, of course, we're not sure that this relates to learning, it's the adult, is behavioral data, again, from Marler and other labs, showing that if you take a young bird, he's just going through his motor, sensory motor phase, and he's singing a bunch of different versions of song, and then if you play back one of his four different versions of song, that's the one that he will crystallize. And actually, if you bring another male in that sings one song, sings a song that's similar to one of his, that's the one he'll pick. So there is definitely, even during learning, you can actually be accelerated towards a particular choice by the presence of another and is that a attention? Probably, I don't, I don't know. What would you call it? No, I, I sometimes like to think of selective attention more as sort of a dynamical, the dynamical context more than anything else. So, all that really matters is you know when the male is singing, uh, does it, it's it's sort of not focused on any particular thing. It doesn't have to make any particular effort. Let me put it that way. I mean, so to anthropomorphize. So it's just simply the randomness comes in simply because there is no clear focus on it. Right, right. Whereas put a female there and immediately his 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 goal is clear. And he focuses on the female, he's a chance to mate. And so there is good reason why he wants to make sure that he is consistent in his approach. Right. So I'm I'm just sort of arguing from that point of view. So, so I do not I do not know But it could be reinforcement too, because if it you think about be, yeah. the learning one, it could be what it engages his reward systems and hence the dopamine that especially if the young bird finding out that this song that he sings seems to be similar to the other guys and that's very good for territorial uh, aggression or something. So, or it could be both, right? Probably yeah. these things, attention and reinforcement are often engaged together, yeah. set by different systems. I don't know. Yeah, it just seems like a, seems like a, it's like it would be nice to get at that specific sort of, you know, pathways that are triggered by, you know, where they originate, what is the, and what is the right. fundamental mechanism that is at play here? It's, Absolutely. And so there are a number of labs recording from the dopamine neurons. But then in a way, we're being very focused on assuming that it's that. I mean, you might suggest something much more. So you're saying, just go and see which brain areas are turned on at all. Right. I mean, you know, when the, a female you know that selective attention, for example, in corticothalamic sort of loops are very important for selective, selective attention. And auditory selective attention particularly is, as there's been a fair bit of work which suggests there are descending influences that sharpen the tuning. Right. And so the same thing could be asked here. Are you observing more regularity in firing simply because there are descending circuits that essentially are eliminating variability? Or what is going on? Is there, is there, are the principles in the sensory side the same as the principles in right. the sensory motor side? And it's a very broad principle there. So, right. so the reduction in variability is, is, seems very clear. I think it has been shown many times, and I think if I'm not mistaken, Takahashi showed this in Barnow, that the... The spread of that these you know diffuse that there's more activity is more focused when there's a single sound source coming in at the level of the inferior follicles, but multiple sound sources and then you have more diffuse activity, and so it seems like there is reason to believe I would think that there is sharpening of tuning on the sensory side. 
So is there a sharpening or tuning on the sensory motor side? Right. And where does it come from? Where does it come from? And actually, this we did talk about at lunch. I mean, do you think that if we... We're asking about sharpening in the sensory motor mode only. What if we put a female president and asked about the male's mm -hmm. uh, ability to process sounds? Would it be greater or less great? You know, I think it could go yeah. either way. He yeah. might pay more attention when she's there, or he might be distracted by thinking about producing or something. Yeah, that, that was. That's, I think when you gave the talk, I think sort of uh, it seemed it wasn't it wasn't clear, very clear because the female and particularly the female choice experiment. I wasn't very sure um, what I mean because the female's performance is purely auditory based. Right. She's simply listening to two songs. Wait, let's talk. Well, if you're going to talk about the experiment, we should explain so, it briefly. Right. So, uh, would you like to explain that experiment? Uh, so here we did, as you suggested, so on the male, we're focusing on his production, poor guy. And then we asked to think about processing of the song. We asked, we decided to go look at his audience, to ask his audience whether she likes the song better when he's singing it in the uh, less variable state or the more variable state, as kind of a, to add to our just-so story about why he might do it. So we asked her to tell us if she preferred the directed less variable song over the undirected song and she definitely preferred the direct but then you're but we've switched to her and then so she she's not doing that in her motor pathway she's doing that in her right. sensory pathways right. right and in fact then we went and looked in her brain and we saw some differences in different sensory pathways right. depending on whether the song was directed or undirected but that hasn't asked him about whether he also is processing sounds differently when she is present she can't right. sing, so we can't ask her about production. But but a simple simple uh, selection pressure, for example, uh, would simply could I explain this very well? For example, if the male is putting out variable song, and the female, on the other hand, is because of she's attending to song, is sharpening her tuning, her ability to receive sounds, and she's only interested in very narrow ranges of frequency that she prefers. Absolutely. Then producing random sounds is not going to assist right, the male. Right. No, at all. I agree. And so, so selection pressure would drive the male to produce more exactly. focused regular songs. So uh, that, that loop is... That loop is... Uh, yeah, the connection between, you know, song production, behavior, the sensory input, back again to more... Right, so, and it's actually, in this case, working across individuals. Yeah, and I like that, too. I mean, this, the postdoc who did this work thinks about evolution a lot, and she pointed out in the paper, you know, selection pressure could be acting on the basal ganglia because of what the female likes. And Right. But it's sort of nice that the, what she likes happens to be what he produces. And you also raised this other point that I think we don't know. We say that he can use, we know he can use the undirected song for motor exploration. Does he? Is he doing it on purpose? Or is it just what he does when he relaxes? Like, it's too darn hard to sing that precise song all the time. Yeah. And so when, he, when she's not there, he doesn't bother. Brainerd's experiment shows that that variability can be used to make the bird learn a new song. That doesn't mean that that's why it's there, and that's going to need more experiments. So I'm very interested in this issue of um, variability and how it impacts on learning. So I went and hit Mike up with this question after your seminar, and it is this. Um, is there a way to ask the question, uh, how important um, the what I call the variability box, but you call it L-L-N? L-M-A-N. L-M-A-N, um, is uh, contributing to the, the speed or the tempo at which the young bird learns its song uh, during the juvenile period. Is there a way that you can sort of titrate the on and off uh, that you were using with your pipette 
uh, with the mucimol hmm. uh, to you know, partially turn it off and see if the bird learns um, half as quickly as it does when the when the variability box is running full tilt. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that would be a neat experiment. And it actually relates, what would happen if you turned it off um, in an active in an animal that's actively changing its song, whether an adult that's changing in one of these paradigms where you're making them plastic, which mm-hmm. there are a bunch of ways to do that, or in the juvenile. And the answer is not in yet. I think it's a really interesting experiment. It relates to whether MAN is just a variability box or more also has signals that tell the motor pathway something about what to do. Or if that variability box, like I was talking about, gives, um, gives the system context um, for error while it's learning. So the variability imposes a baseline. Um, in, in the learning circuit, and so you really know when you're right, and you also know when you're right. wrong, because you have to extract it, rightness and wrongness, out of that sort of background noise. Well, that's so, a different way of thinking about it. I mean, I actually am quite interested, in, and many labs are, in whether there's also some information about right or wrong in what's coming from MAN, which is a little, your model is different, it's interesting. It says a right or wrong signal might be coming from somewhere else, but MAN helps to see whether something is really right or wrong. I'm actually interested in the possibility that in addition to variability, this is a really complex circuit. It also gives biasing signals. Mm-hmm. That's, that's sort of... That's, I think that's what you're getting at. And actually, yeah. the Brainer Lab is working hard on that uh, to try to do exactly the sort of experiment you're saying where they take birds where they've made them be plastic and they're, they have a neat paradigm for changing the song in the adults. So they know what's nice about that compared to the young birds is they know where it came from and they're making a change, and then they are transiently inactivating MAN and asking what happens. Because if it was just variability, you might expect it to stop in its tracks mm-hmm. and stop changing. But if it actually has some information in it that was important for pushing it there, it might back up. That's, I think that's the experiment you're suggesting. It might lose some of the gains it had made because it wasn't only getting variability, it was getting some neural firing that said, you know, pull on that muscle harder. You're supposed to be making B, B flat, not B. And so they're, they're trying to do exactly that kind of experiment, except in the adult plasticity model that you're suggesting, to see what happens if you turn it off and on, and what happens to the song when it had MAN and now it doesn't have MAN. And well, I think so maybe learning the, song, learning the song through the juvenile period may be somewhat different than, than once it's in the adult. I guess my prediction would be if you reduce the variability um, during the juvenile period, that it would take the animal a lot longer to learn the song. Which is probably counterintuitive, but no, no, I agree. I actually agree with you. I know it sounds counterintuitive, right? But it may be that you need variability to sort of explore motor space. That's the idea. And if you can't explore, you get stuck in a local minimum that is not on the way to getting better. I have one more question about this. So I'm I study puberty, so I'm very interested in everything that goes on in that process. So. What happens if you get stuck with a bum tutor? Um, how do the it, birds in the wild pick their tutor? Is is it always the the fathering bird? And does the juvenile recognize if maybe he's not keeping pace with other people and go find a new tutor? <laughs> That's interesting. I don't, some of these I don't know enough of the behavioral literature, but it, you definitely the birds can improvise. So it's not simply copying the tutor. If you have a bum tutor, and some of that has been set up in lab experiments, mm-hmm. the more the tutor is impoverished, the more the 
baby bird will improvise and add some stuff. So there must be some feeling, innate circuitry that says, this isn't very good, I'm going to make it better. Whether it's listening, it might be innate. Because in that case, in the lab, it's not because they're listening to the neighbor going, hey, he sure has a better song than me. In the wild, that kind of stuff could happen. It's going to be very dependent on the type of species. Because if some birds are out wandering, listening to other birds at a very mm-hmm. early time, and some species aren't. And starlings are an amazing example where they're being raised in the nest of a bird that uh, they are, you know, they were just put in there, <clears throat> and that's not their tutor. I mean, that's not their species. And it turns out they don't listen to it. Their critical period opens up, opens up much later when they're already out and about, so they can find other starlings. So, uh, so you're. I don't know that. A whole answer to your question, there might well be... Birds definitely can improvise, and would they go and seek other tutors? They yeah, might, actually. Yeah, if you put a, they an might. inexperienced bird in the middle of your box and a bum tutor and a good tutor well, on either side... Well, there are some ex- cool experiment, cute experiments like that in zebra finches, or it's not bum acoustically, but in a different way. So you can show if you put a young bird in one end and you have a male and a female here and just a male here. Mm-hmm. There's a song oops, of the guy with the female... As if it's right, well, if he made it, his song must be better, right? So he does choose in that way. He's making a judgment about this poor old bachelor over here, and this guy has it made. Did he know well, already? The juvenile bird. There's a lovely experiment done in fish that actually do that. Really? Yeah, cool you, can, you can choose, you can, a female will, so you can train a female to two fish on either side, so two male fish on either side, and she'll prefer, let's say, one of them. Then what you do is you isolate the female in the middle of the tank with a cylinder or something. Then take the loser male, put another female with him. Oh, cool. And okay. she will go to that. That's a neat experiment. I should so get the reference. Yeah, it makes sense. There's definitely yeah, so other kind of cues to tell you better optimize your chances. So I thought it'd end on um, a technology note. What are you waiting for? What's the next wave that's going to be dogma shifting and, and mind rocking in your field? Interesting, but I mean, some of Rama was probably hinting at that. One of the things that dogs, a lot of us who are studying songbirds, compared to people who can study mice and flies and worms, is we don't, it's not a, as genetically tractable an animal as, um, by far, as other animals, but there are techniques coming online to try to do gene manipulations in these animals, we're going to have the songbird genome so then we can maybe look at what's different between some of the stuff you're acting, asking, both were asking about, like what's different genetically between animals that can have sensitive periods that stay open their whole life, like mockingbirds or whatever, versus birds that close that period at an early time. And I don't expect that to be one gene, I expect that to be many genes, and it may not be different, it may just be different amounts or when they got expressed. So I think that's going to be interesting, tricky, because uh, it's still going to need to, it will all still stay in business because you're really going to need to figure out what genes are turned on where in what circuits. It's not just going to be as simple as, think what we used to think in all this stuff and what's turned out to be wrong for most things is there will be one gene that's correlated with open learning versus closed learning. It's not going to be that. It's going to turn out that cyclic AMP stays higher in the subset of VTA or something in birds that learn throughout life and not in closed learners. And you're going to really have to combine new genetic techniques with the stuff that we already know how to do about looking at circuits and cells and stuff. That's good. But, you know, some people are very interested in selective breeding experiments to try to make strains of birds like has happened by the songbird breeders that might be useful for looking at learning variation. 
those new tools to manipulate neural activity are going to be useful in the song system. Again, the genetics genetics would make it easier if we could go in and turn them on in just the neurons that you and I are interested yeah. in and stuff. So some of that will be happening. It's always something are, are there um, inroads being made towards genetic manipulation in birds? Yeah, so there. Uh, yeah. first of all, lentiviruses work fine in birds in a number. There's even a publication already showing that someone who used um, lentivirally delivered siRNA against FOXP2, which is a transcription factor that's actually important for basic ganglion development, and she was able to go and show that. So people are doing different stuff with viruses, and there's a couple of labs working on making transgenic birds. Uh, that's turned out to be very difficult, but for I think a lot of it turns out to be for little technical reasons, like it's hard to get the eggs to hatch after you've cut a hole in them and stuff like that. <laughs> they'll get there eventually. <laughs> that's not... I forgot they have eggs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Well, thank you, Alice Dope. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Prefrontal, although Michael and probably other proper real anatomists as well as physiologists hate it that when I <laughs> when I call it cortical, do you, are you kind of I'm are kind you, of anti-cortex. Yeah. You, you don't consider it part of cortex. Yeah. Yeah. I can give you like a, a thirty-minute lecture on how I feel about cortex. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's I could see the pain in his face. <laughs> it's pallial. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I feel that way about salads. Okay. And pallium is the embryology there that gives rise to cortex. Although these guys and others have done nice work. On the other hand, someone told me, Larry Swanson told someone who told someone who told someone, (laughs) that if you look in the big acta anatomica, the definition of terms, if you look up pallium in the mammalian literature, they say, definition, cortex. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we may have, this is real shock talk about the songbird system, although we can backtrack to a big question. So the songbird people had... You want to start over? No, no, I want you to talk about this. I can actually splice it in if it's relevant later. But anyway, you, you can want to keep yeah, going. You can yeah. make sure they get my best side. Audio, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to worry about my best side. We could uh, do this in our pajamas. Yeah, I know. Um, there was a whole debate about what these structures should be called in songbirds to end a renaming conference. You, did you go to that? I actually was sick. I couldn't go. So that was really was recently, sick. wasn't it? All, this was a big uh, paradigm shift that happened that caused people to be able to finally communicate with each other across fields, right? Right, so because it turned out, I mean, and Michael can tell the story better than me, but way back when, because of the way songbird brains looked, it was named, it was, and because of prejudice that existed about birds versus mammals, they went into the songbird brain because it doesn't have so many layers, and they called everything that they saw almost except for the very top striatum, paleostriatum, archistriatum, this striatum, mm-hmm. and ironically, the only thing they didn't call striatum is the thing that really is striatum, <laughs> and everything else <laughs> turned out to be paleo, derived from a lot of the others, which is like cortex, but it's not layered. Yeah. But it's similar embryologic origin, and there's lots of parallels. So a bunch, as many things as could be, were renamed. We decided, or I wasn't there either, but it was decided to stick with calling the structures that are cortex-like to call them pallial, not cortex. 
I, in retrospect, think that may have been short-sighted because the mammalian people still have a lot of trouble with our system, and they still go, um, but there's no cortex, right? Or Oh, you mean that's cortex? And if we had called it, it's just swallowed hard and said, it's cortex, well, it's not layered. There is an, an important point here that's not just a terminological. So there is a part of mammalian pallium that is not cortex, and that's you know parts of the amygdala and the claustrum. And so one school of thought on how avian brains are organized or how uh, non-mammalian brains are organized is that that part of the pallium that in uh, mammals become these really tiny parts of the brain, just you know, the amygdala and the classroom are vastly expanded in birds. And so, so what do you think about that? I think uh, Rubenstein's, uh, so there's John Rubenstein who did, uh, who identified these molecular markers for the different parts of the telencephalon in, in birds and mammals. And he, his, uh, his markers would seem to indicate that much of the, uh, much of, almost all of the pallium of birds is not derived from, uh, from the part that becomes cortex. So that, you know, that, I'm just not sure if you want to consider that molecular evidence that convincing. But then there's also the anatomical side where uh, Martin Wilde and Tony Reiner have uh, mapped the anatomy of what we used to call Volst, which we, you know, we call, what, what is the new term now, the hyperpallium. Anyway, um, that is connectionally a lot like um, cortex as a whole. So the caudal part it receives visual input and the rostral part um, Projects uh, it would receive somatosensory input and also it projects down into the hypothalamus and to the spinal cord, and so you can make a pretty good argument that that specific part of the bird brain is homologous to mammalian isocortex, and uh, then there is of course another part that we call the bird hippocampus that is very convincingly argued to be homologous to the mammalian hippocampus, but all this other part of the telencephalon that is not basal ganglia. Um, it's not clear that, that it's actually you know, homologous to mammalian isocortex. It could be a vastly expanded uh, sort of a vastly expanded, expanded pallial region, which we call amygdala in in mammals, but which may which probably does serve other functions in birds if this hypothesis. Well, yeah, is because correct. then you'd have to say that birds do everything that we do with cortex with this other yeah. structure because it has premotor areas, it has motor areas, it yes. has prefrontal-like areas, it has sensory areas. I mean, so you'd have to be doing all of that with your amygdala, which so functionally that, well... It's not so hard to think about if you think about what the precursor to mammals and birds, the last common living ancestor of mammals and birds was probably like, and to get a sense of what that might have been like, you would look at amphibians. And actually, amphibian telencephalon is is organized very differently from both. And if you look at... um, that, you know, if you consider that as, a, as the ancestral uh, paleo organization, it's not so hard to imagine that this one part uh, got vastly expanded in mammals and took on all these functions that not only does it not have in frogs, it doesn't have in birds, and then another part of the pallium happened to get elaborated in this separate lineage. But took on birds. all the same functions. Took on all the same functions. Because in frogs, there also aren't these... Uh, sophisticated primary sensory areas and these designated motor areas. It, the telencephalon is a lot more like uh, more hypothalamus-like, I think. I see, but that's not true. Birds, right. It's not true. So I think birds look and so the, so part right. You take you go from a simple starting point in two separate lineages that have been evolving separately for 300 million years, and you get right. very different right. results. That's convergent in some ways because right. where they're doing the same functions. So let me ask a uh, related question, a more practical, sciencey question on that. So, 
you were kind of on the outside of, you know, you weren't directly involved in that. So in, the how, in the renaming conference. In the renaming conference. So how do you think it's gone, like when you talk to people, uh, you say that maybe they should have gone with Cortex, but how, how successful overall do you think it's been, and what kind of reaction do you get as you talk to people about songbirds out in the Well, so you world? see, I've started to... Um, say that this is a cortical-basal ganglia circuit, and sometimes I put quotation marks around it. You can't hear those when you talk, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, because I think the parallels are too important, and um, but actually when you send papers in to review the song where people mostly say you can't call this cortex. So I feel like... Uh, no tap on the table, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, except when I want to be really vehement. <laughs> That's what Evan's for. Yeah. Um, so, I think the rename conference helped a lot, and people understand it. And this one is a sticking one. So Michael, who's an expert, is telling you all the reasons that may be wrong, uh, sort of anatomically to call it cortex, but functionally it's very equivalent. And in particular, in this work of that I was talking about, um, I was one of the reviewers of Satoshi's paper said, "Don't call it cortex. Call it." Pallium. So we Satoshi Dufin went through and changed everything to pallium, but there's palatal neurons and palatal oh, neurons. Yeah. And so he called it has to be called a paleopalatal circuit. And we had someone else read the paper for us who said, Don't call it that. And in fact Satoshi miswrote in one place palatal when he meant paleo. And so I just said, Satoshi, we can't this is for understanding. So I think generally that naming conference was very helpful and people now feel like birds have high relevance and then we're all stuck trying to decide what to call it. Maybe what we should really do is try to get all you cortical people to switch and call your stuff pallium. We call it the apical ganglia. That's <laughs> <laughs> too good. So, um, but that was a big help, don't you think? Yeah, and I, I, think, I think so. I mean, I haven't had that much direct experience, but I, I think so. But who spearheaded that whole uh, well, the number of anatomists, and in the end, Eric Jarvis sort of was the main moderator of it. But it was, what it really was, no, it was looking at a huge body of anatomical literature by comparative anatomists and um, trying to make sense of it and um, and fix the things that had been wrong that really were embedded in the early part of the last century where people said birds' brains are really different and don't have anything in common with mammalian brains. And that had gradually been changing based on developmental stuff and really nice anatomy from a lot of people. And, yeah, mostly an embryology, right, mm-hmm. the development. So in, in, in that vein of uh, comparing the bird brain to mammalian brains, do birds show similar lateralization in these uh, song productions? As, as language, as of course, her that has, So the question of lateralization has been controversial. And at first it was thought that they did have it, from work of Fernando Nottebaum, because so, it was clear that if you did left-sided lesions, actually canaries had much more deficits than right-sided central lesions. That probably turned out to mostly be peripheral. They have a much bigger muscle on the left side of their vocal organ than on the right side. <laughs> and I think right now the, the jury is out on lateral. It doesn't actually look like the song system is lateralized. There's new data coming out suggesting some of the sensory areas might be a little bit lateralized. Mm-hmm. So that is not that which early on seemed like another really nice parallel between songbirds and mm-hmm. human speech mm-hmm. hasn't turned out to be so clear. And in fact, there's a very cool set of papers that just came out from a bunch of different labs showing that 
um, it's the opposite of lateralization. Songbirds apparently switch back and forth between the two sides of their, so everything is paired. While they're singing, their dominant control is coming from one side. Both sides are active, but dominance is coming from one side versus the other, and then switching back and forth. And uh, I think there's a certain kind of irony in the, in the lateralization question or story with songbirds because, um, you know, in mammals, uh, there is this massive trunk of fibers, the corpus callosum, that links the two hemispheres and allows for coordination. And yet in humans, at least for speech, it's lateralized. It all happens, or, or a lot of it happens on just one hemisphere. In birds, they are coordinated, but there's no big highway connecting the two hemispheres. And so it's been one of the, one of the mysteries has been how this coordination, which apparently happens, actually does happen. And they do. They synchronize on the two hemispheres without direct connections. Well, there's lots of other connections between the two sides beyond the corpus callosum. Well, yeah, that's true, uh, but so the corpus callosum is, is by far the bigger. And we, I think we, we have a good idea of where actually this connection happens, and it actually happens down in the brainstem. There, the, there are respiratory vocal control centers in, in the brainstem that, are, that do have bilateral connections, but it's a little strange to, to, to think that the entire system is synchronized at that low level. You know, the, HV, the HVC, this cortex-like area, this pattern general area, uh, the two sides of the HVC get coordinated through this brainstem circuit. 